Today's episode is brought to you by Fox and Stallion. Fox and Stallion is a Victorian mystery comedy fiction podcast about the best detective team on Baker Street. No, not that one. Season two will be airing in 2024 and is currently crowdfunding through May 1st. They have stickers, personalized in-universe thank you letters with wax seal, calligraphy, and all of it, and even a tier where they solve a mystery that you send them. They do want me to note Fox and Stallion cannot guarantee the solving of any mysteries, but they will try their absolute hardest for three to five audio minutes. This show also has everything you could want. Jewel heists, asexual detectives, lavender marriages, and a really old cat. You can find and listen to Fox and Stallion anywhere you listen to podcasts or on their website, 224bbaker.com. That's 224bbaker.com. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Eleanor, executive producer for Unwell, and I'm here with a bunch of our team to chat for the evening about what it's like working in audio and making Unwell. So a couple of thoughts before we get started, and I make everybody go around and introduce themselves. I just want to say that uh, we are going to talk pretty freely about the show with the assumption that if you are listening to this, you are at least mostly caught up on season three. So we may talk about some of the big and important things that happen in the season finale for season three. If you haven't listened to that yet, you might want to come back to this later after you have. Um, you have been warned. Okay, great. Uh, to get us started, I just want to go around and have each of the four of you introduce yourselves so people can hear your voice and tell us who you are and what role you play on Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. I am Joshua K. Harris, uh, he, him, and I play Rudy. I'm Marsha Harmon, she, her, and I play Dot Harper. I'm Mark Soloff, he, him, and I play Silas Lodge. I'm Ellie Maitland, she, her, and I'm the waitress. And I'm Eleanor Hyde, she, her, executive producer. I wanted to ask you all to talk. I know you all have done stage acting as well. And I wanted you to chat a little bit about like, how is voice acting different than acting on the stage? What do you like about it? What's that all about? I think it's more humane <laughs> to, work in, uh, to work in audio. Um, and this is a conversation that's been going on for a lot of people, especially in the theater community here in Chicago, where we record, um, that we're all kind of over uh, the way stage and theater works, um, possibly just in Chicago, possibly all over the U.S., maybe farther, um, because it's so demanding of your time for so little, well, financial reward, and sometimes very little any other reward, um, it you know, I know once upon a time, Marsha, who it turns out I'm married to. Um, <gasps> Spoilers! Spoiler. That was supposed to be season five. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a plot twist. There was a time when she was working her full-time job and also doing a stage play at the same time, rehearsing, performing. And just every hour of every day was consumed with some form of work. And it... She loved the show and she likes her job. And I'm speaking for you, of course, but. And it, it was awful. 
But it was awful. It was yeah. Awful. yeah. Yeah. And and doing this, working in audio, um, you know, the flip side of this is it's sadly we don't see each other often enough, but also we show up five, six times a year to a spot and do some work and leave and we get to, you know, see our pets and make dinner <laughs> and, I, uh, you know, uh, see people who we don't work with. Um, it's it it's so much more humane working in audio. Yeah, I think it's also um a couple things I that I like about it more is it's it's uh like a lot of the constraints based on what type you are and what you look like, they all go out the window. You know, so um I'm you know, I'm playing Don Harper who's 62 or 63 when the show starts and that is not my age. Um and that's great and uh in um in another Heartlife NFP audio drama that I had the honor of participating in, um, I got to play a character who did a lot of like really badass things, like go up elevators the hard way. <laughs> um, and like I, I'm not great at like stage combat. I can't do that kind of role on stage, but in audio drama, I can be a total badass, which is Wonderful. Thank you, sound designers. Right. Yeah. Yes, right. Very much so. And it's like, uh, it's 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 so much fun because in stage acting, you are always part of the final product. Like the actors are the people who execute it every night on the stage. And in audio drama, we don't get to hear the final product until everybody else does. And so we go kind of, sort of like kind of building on what you were saying, like we go put in our work and make our contribution. And then we go away and six months, eight months later, we hear the final episode and we hear all the work of the designers and the editors. And like, I've forgotten half of the plot points. And so I get to listen to it and wonder what's going to happen next and be kind of delighted at these surprising sound effects. And it's, it's, it's so much more fun to like be a part of like contribute to the creation of something, but also be able to listen to it like as a fan. I, uh, Second, Marsha's um, uh, enjoyment of uh, voice acting in that you can be anything. You can be all sorts of crazy characters. I did uh, uh, a secret project, which will probably never come to the light of day. I'm not... I'm not more secret than that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not teasing you with anything. Um, <laughs> it's just like a, a, a test thing. Um, and I got to play like this giant bruiser space alien. And that's just not my type. <laughs> For the record, though, Mark is seven foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm not a space alien. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so like obviously Silas Lodge, uh, we're Caucasians. But other than that, <laughs> we don't have a whole lot in common. Um, and also, uh, much like Dot, uh, Silas Lodge is an, an, an older entity than I am. Um, and just a, just a bit. <laughs> uh, so that's awesome because uh, in college, in acting class, they used to say, your face is your destiny. And I was like, oh, F. <laughs> <laughs> just the whole classroom cries. But the other aspect, if I can get into emotions, is um, that, like, I personally uh, hit a real roadblock with my live performing in Chicago, like, mm, eight years ago, maybe, in that I developed stage fright and panic attacks. And, like, it 
it was devastating to me because I love performing and I love playing. Um, but there is a biological thing that happens to you when you have a room full of other human beings just looking at you. Um, and voice work is so like liberating in that way because you're in a room it's mostly the cast or people that you know, you know, and if you flub on something, you can say, oh, hold on, let me try that again. And it's just for me personally, it's so much more of a safe space. I think a lot of that has to do with the people that you're working with. And this company in particular is very good at creating that. Um, but it's really nice to be a, an anxious horse and still be able to run in the race. Can I build off of that real quick? Um, first of all, absolutely. It is such a much more um, supportive medium and a safe medium, especially when you have a team that is committed to those values. Um, but also talking about playing characters you usually, usually wouldn't get to play, that's definitely the experience I have playing Rudy. And I don't know how well this is known, but when I went into audition for Rudy, it was the same time that Mark went into audition and Michael Turrentine went to audition, and I don't, I don't mark. I don't know if you read for any characters besides Silas or not, um, but I know I was supposed to read for both Silas and Rudy, and I thought, well, okay, Silas is probably where they'll get any serious look at me. There's, I'll probably won't get Rudy, um, and I think Michael was reading for Rudy, uh, and of course as well as Wes, and so in my head, like. Silas is the role I usually would play. Just that someone older, an authority figure, maybe the heavy, that kind of thing. I don't get to usually play the higher-pitched, younger end of my, um, you know, vocal range or it's the beard, yeah. <laughs> and I am seven foot nine, so. Um, uh, Rub it in, why don't you? And a space alien. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and so getting to... I, Rudy was an amazing opportunity to get to do that, but it's just not something I usually get to do. Uh, Mark and I were actually talking about the other day. It was just really cool to to meet each other in that context as well as Michael and then come out the other side with Michael as West, myself as Rudy, and Mark as Silas. Um, that's just what this medium affords you. I want to jump in because I just want to say I was in that audition room and like Audition processes are so weird because, you know, you see a lot of people and and you consider a lot of options. And, you know, now years later, it's like really hard for me not to imagine to imagine anything except for exactly what happened. But I will say there were a couple of people where I remember Jeffrey and I talking about it and being like, well, I mean, duh, that's clearly the right person for this. And Josh, both you and Mark were people who were like, oh, that's done. We don't need to, I mean, we're, we're oh, Mark had an amazing read. Like, but it was like, well, we're done with that one. All right. We don't need to talk to, I mean, I guess we should read some other people, but like, so it's just, it's sort of funny being on the other side of that and being like, mm, I mean, that wasn't my experience, but like, I, you know, of course not. We're different people. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a lot, uh, new to contribute to the equation. Um, it's a very freeing medium. It's very exciting to have, uh, I guess, more agency over your headcanon in relation to the characters that you're playing um, and also feel like you're not confined by whatever it is you're going to be presenting on stage and being like, audience, this is what you better have in your head because it's what you get. (laughs) Um, And the experiences that I've had with uh, a a couple of Heart Life uh, productions at this point of uh, very 
disparate characters that I wouldn't normally necessarily get to play in a stage context is really cool. You still get the community aspect of getting to collaborate with your uh, other um, peers uh, in in your scenes. Uh, one of the things I've always really enjoyed about Heart Life is recording with the other actors in your scenes when you can, because I feel like that really makes a big difference in the um, ultimate creative output, like when people are really organically reacting off of each other. But still, you do have those other opportunities to be like, I want to try that again. I want to take a different take on that. And uh, just getting all those out in a way that would also not necessarily work in a stage context. You can't say to the audience, oh, I'm going to try that again. <laughs> We're cool, right? I also had like an, an adjustment period when I first started doing any kind of recording acting um, you know, because there is that great organic feeling of like being in the room with the actors and kind of playing around. But uh, in on in a rehearsal for a stage play, you can overlap with the person that you're talking to. Um, oh, and you can like turn your pages whenever you want. Um, and so I remember like my first couple of rehearsals and recording sessions uh, back in the Our Fair City days, I had a lot of like, oh, oh, I have to like learn these new, these new kind of technical protocols. And I mean, not that that was, I mean, it was just like a challenge and I figured it out and it's fine. Um, but it's like the sort of this extra layer of, um, of consideration. And there's also a kind of like, uh, it, it requires or it relies on a trust in the editing team because sometimes there's like lines that break over a page or like a conversation that relies on this really quick back and forth and I know I don't want to step on their line, so I'm giving it a little more air than I would if this were a live performance. But I know that when they go to actually make the final cut, they're going to they're gonna get those lines right on top of each other or overlap them or whatever it is. Um, and so that's just an interesting like added layer of stuff to think about with the audio. Another one of the things, if I can add on to that, is uh, when you're in the room with your collaborators and you're seeing them react to... Uh, other people's work and that can just be really really fun and rewarding like there there are uh, folks that I've just seen them reacting in real time to other parts of the story that maybe they weren't familiar with or they hadn't read or impressed on them during like earlier table reads and it's just really cool to see that unfolding uh kind of like you're not only your peers but also your audience and your cheerleading team so that's cool if you ever have the opportunity to do a recording along with Michael Turrentine or Cat Hoyle, yep. you will never have a greater experience with an immediate audience in an audio work. The times Michael will cover his mouth with both hands <laughs> and and the way Cat will give the looks. Um, it, it, it's amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if that's specifically who you were thinking of, but that's who comes to mind <laughs> for me. <laughs> I wasn't naming names, but I was thinking them really loudly. So thank you for picking that up. Message received. <laughs> So I, this is a great transition point because one of the things I wanted to talk about was like, how did pandemic times change our recording experience? Because I agree, Ellie, I feel like one of my favorite things about our process is getting to be in the studio with a whole, with everybody, right? So traditionally how we have always set up our recording sessions is we say, um, on this date, we're going to record all of episode three or at least like 90% of episode three, and we bring everybody who's in that episode to the studio at the same time. We read, we do a couple rehearsals, and then we record it. And 
you know, in 2020, the whole world turned upside down and we did a lot of really hard thinking about how to be do recordings and still be safe. And one of the things that we ended up doing was we split up that recording schedule way more than we've ever done before um, in an effort to just have fewer people in the studio at any given time. And a lot of people ended up recording by themselves. So not always, like sometimes we'd, sometimes we'd have two people like in a scene bouncing off of each other. But like a lot of times we just had one of you alone in a room together with Jeffrey as director and Mel as engineer. And like, so yeah, I'm really curious to hear you all talk about what that experience was like, just because it was really different. And it's something I think we've always, I've always thought was sort of critical to how we make the work. And then we did it different and it, the work was still amazing, but it was, it, it was a different the process felt really different, even if I think on the product at the finish line, like I I don't think most people would know that we did that really differently. So I don't know. How how was recording in 2020 in the time of the pandemic? How how are y'all feeling about that and heading into doing it again? I was generally fortunate. I um got to record with at least one other person, I think most of the time, if not all of the time. Um but I know there were several people who had to record alone for either one episode or a few lines or maybe their entire season of work. Um, and, and, and a quick sidebar on that, that's a huge testament to Jeffrey and the editors and the sound designers for making that disparate work work so seamlessly together um, for these incredible conversations and action scenes and things like that. But but I was lucky. I got to record with some other people. I do want to toss out there. It's not only a testament to the quality of the direction and the sound design and uh, those teams pulling it together, but I also think it speaks very highly to the dynamics that the acting ensemble had established in previous seasons together. Yeah, even when we weren't physically in the room anymore. Like, I know, I know what Lily sounds like. I can imagine uh, her voice in my head. And even if the final product is like a different take than I would have that I was imagining. It's still like, I know, I know kind of what that feels like. Yeah. It's still very much grounded in a relationship that you two had instilled from uh, previous work together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I will uh, say also that I was one of the actors that uh, did only uh, solo recording uh, this past year. Uh, the waitress can get a little spitty. <laughs> so it seemed like it might be in everyone's best interest to, you know, make it less hazmat. <laughs> in a group setting. Um, But I'll also go ahead and shoehorn in that one of the things that I also love about this crew um, and working with Jeffrey in particular is that they and I are also uh, noise nerds together. Um, We uh, come to sound design in uh, different ways because I'm predominantly an analog uh, sound artist. I do live fully for uh, audio drama whenever I get to, and that has also been, you know, a bit of question uh, during the sickness, but um, we have an established dynamic when it comes to building sound and sound's relationship to character. And one of the cool things that we got to experiment with in the waitresses scenes in this past season, because some of it, so much of it was building a sound bank mm-hmm. of different ways that uh, Jeffrey and the rest of the sound artists were going to be editing together uh, the way she uh, was intimidating other characters spoilers um 
meant like a lots lots of like little bits and pieces. And ultimately, I asked Jeffrey if they would conduct me on how to deliver certain sequences and certain uh, phrases and lines. And I thought that was really successful. And it's also something that I've incorporated into later performances, later collaborations uh, as a sound artist, um, which is actually also a bit more related to how radio drama would have been done in uh, the vastly before times in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It was more commonplace uh, for radio theater directors to conduct their voice actors when they were all in a studio together. So it was kind of cool to be bringing such a, a contemporary um, and like super like high tech uh, sound uh, operation into something that was also kind of more like old timey in execution. I wish everyone could have seen Ellie as she was delivering that because she was also <laughs> conducting like there was the the gestures were very much supporting what you were saying. I, I do lots of enjoying. hands. No, it was great. <laughs> it was great. One of the cool things that I got to experience in in the sort of like I, I did a couple scenes together with people, and then I think I was like, I don't know, I didn't feel great one day, and so we all decided eh, I should just not come in. So I wound up recording a couple scenes by myself later, including the scene. Uh, that had the, I think it was the Christmas scene that had all the singing with young Lily and like, I don't know, middle-aged dot. Um, and uh, I think Symphony had already recorded her version of that scene. And so I was like looking at the script and I'm like, so I'm singing with another person. <laughs> and how are we going to be singing in the same key as if we're singing together? And of course, Jeffrey had already created the solution to that problem, which was that I was listening to her recording as I was getting ready to do mine so that like it was just in my head and you know it was it was as close to being in the same room as we could have been um but that was like that was a fun thing and then when I got to like actually listen to the episode I was like yep there we are singing together like we were singing together for me um I recorded everything in the previous season in in one day just Jeffrey and myself um <clears throat> and I absolutely missed having the cast around and um getting to kind of get back into that groove. Um, because as previously mentioned, like we only come in like five times a year and then it's a fallow period while the writers and editors do their thing. Um, and also, uh, like, I don't know. So heart life for me has become a bit of like, like, my community, my people. And so the pandemic was difficult because like just seeing each other is meaningful to me aside from the work. Um, so that being said, just getting to like hang out with Jeffrey for an afternoon and talk about me and my character. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's bliss. Um, but uh, so another... Uh, I think that recording alone for the past season, um, for me, uh, there was the saving grace of Silas Lodge being this otherworldly thing. And so there's a scene um, where Abby is like spelunking and, <laughs> and finds uh, Silas's old like uh, writings and the the voice of the writing comes alive and tells one of those old Silas Lodge stories. And so in that regard, um, 
it's like Silas is talking to himself in a way. I mean, he's still communicating with Abby from beyond the page or whatever. Um, but th that's different than having like a Lily Dot scene where it's like, I can't believe you woke me up. Get out of my room. What are you doing? You know, uh, Silas is prone to um, like mansplain his dialogue and just <laughs> kind of be like, hey, shut up, campers. Let me tell you a story for the next minute or so, and then you can react to me. So <laughs> that made it a little easier uh, to record alone. Can we do a spinoff series called Camp Silas, where Silas <laughs> is a camp counselor? Oh, my God. All right. I have another question for you. I was recently in this conversation. I was talking to some folks about um, making audio fiction and, and somebody in the conversation uh, expressed this opinion that they felt as though people who come out of a stage background uh, are really strong in audio work because when you work on the stage, as opposed to, let's say, on film or television, um, in a play, you have to rely so heavily on the words that come out of your mouth. Um, you can't assume that a given audience member is looking at your face at any given moment. You don't have close-ups. Like there, there's just there's a different way that you use language. Um, and I'm sort of curious what you think about that because I found it to be a a striking way to think about acting and words and audio in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before. And I don't know. I'm sort of curious if any of you have a reaction to that. I'm intrigued by the premise uh, because one of the first things I would think is that it's so much more common for people to have a, a theatrical background first, at least until this past generation where I feel like there's going to be a lot of folks that are suddenly learning how to act expressly over camera because of the internet and because of Zoom. And so I got to wonder what that's going to do for their own like frame of reference and physical and vocal vocabulary when they're creating characters and also learning how uh, what they consider to be performance. Uh, there's an on a longer conversation, I think, about how um, how different like canonized or iconographied um, sound and like narrative structure is going to be over the next couple of decades simply because there are so many more options at our disposal than there used to be but my um my immediate reaction or association when it comes to stage in relation to um audio drama would be not only that the words do so much of your work in stagecraft but also that simply like having that kind of control and discipline over your apparatus for the sake of being able to project might give you a larger sense of vocabulary for what you can be doing vocally and in building not just your main character, but any other supporting or variations of characters. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the type of audio work they're doing and the type of character that they're playing. Because I personally, as a stage actor and as a voice actor, um, sort of build out from the outside in, which I, th I think is viewed as like the inferior way to approach acting, but I'm like, okay, what is a, what is a evil old reverend, uh, 
sound like, um, and I, I physically change the way I sound. Um, but, and and like in our fair city, uh, I played a number of characters and they were, many of them were quite cartoonish, which I love, but, um, if it were like a gritty true crime reenactment type thing, there's no Archibald funny pants space in that. (laughs) Um, not yet. No. Is there? <laughs> Archie goes off the rails. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to bring it back to our first city, there is a, um, an actor, Whitney Jones, um, who I had never heard do audio work before. Um, and I believe she was mostly film um, prior to that. And she played Sully, who was like the ant queen. Uh, and her performance, it, she was just basically using her own voice, her own speaking voice. And her f- performance was so subtle and so real uh, that I was like blown away by it. Um, so I think uh, that it depends on the type of picture you're painting. I think it's true. I, I think also, first of all, to underline a point I think has already been made that if all you know is film or some other medium where your words are only some small part of the overall story being told in the moment. Maybe it is harder to adapt to this, but I, I also don't think that theater is exclusively the thing that prepares you well for this. Um, I think, I think there's a certain commonality that runs through everybody who works on unwell Um, and it is shared by a lot of other performers where you grow up really enjoying a certain show or series or performer or whatever it may be. Um, and you really try to emulate that. Like as a kid, I know I would, when no one was looking, you know, go into the bathroom and like try to do my Simpsons impressions in the mirror or try to do things like that. Like, hi, Homa. And you try to be Mo or whatever it is. And you try to these try these different vocal expressions and you try to uh without trying to necessarily, you end up working on your enunciation and, and, and all these little technical skills that I really don't like to get into the weeds on. But um there's something to be said for a lot of different avenues um to come to audio work. Um yes, a lot of us have gone through stage work. And that certainly is one way to do it. I mean, so with stage work, you are, and this maybe speaks a little to Mark's experience. I know it's been somewhat true of me. There's times you go out there and it's terrifying because it is just you in that moment that, and everything sinks or swims based on what you're doing. Um, and through that trial by fire, you learn a few things. Um, hopefully, hopefully the the world doesn't chew you up and spit you out the way it often does so many people. Um, I'm keeping it light. Um, uh, but yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to come to um, being well-skilled for audio work, at least as a performer. I think my, like, as a stage actor, I've always been very language-focused. Like, my strength as an actor has been, uh, like, I would say language-first, emotions second and like physicality later in the list, (laughs) you know, and, and, and on stage you have to be doing all of the things at once because you never know where people are looking. You're always there. You're always present. You're always in character. Um, but in some ways it like that made the, the transition 
easier because it was like, oh, great. Here's this whole whole section of things I don't have to think about for this performance. All I have to do is... Um, Excuse oh. me. <laughs> oh, kitty. Oh, so mournful. Right? Um, so in audio acting, there's like this whole slate of things that you don't have to worry about. Um, and so all, all I have to really do is, is worry about like saying the words and being present in the scene that way. And it does often happen that like, I find myself giving like facial expression reactions to things that I know are never going to read, you know? Um, and that's just like, that's just... That's just what happens, you know. If if it if it needs a reaction, the writers are going to write something to be said, um, or they're going to punctuate it with a door slam or something. Um, but but it's it's uh, for me, it kind of allows me to use my favorite tools in the actor toolbox. I I would um I'd also wonder if uh like vocal like musical technique informs anything because I know you've got a beautiful singing voice and I don't know if you're like classically trained or anything but I did I did do some uh like classical voice lessons um and it's funny because I like uh I feel like I don't generally put it to very good use um and and in some ways like audio drama lets me really because you're not projecting to a room of 200 people or 50 people or a room that seats 200 and holds 50 Sometimes <laughs> happens in Chicago non-equity theater, um, and and so uh, in in some ways I feel like it. it I don't want to say lazy, but like you don't have to. You don't have to do some of the things that you have to do in live performance. And also, I think there are some things that you should do in live performance that you can't do. Like the kind of enunciation that I would do for a, a mid-sized audience with the, those like consonants and and those plosive consonants. Um, like you can't, you don't need to do that in audio drama. Like that somebody else takes care of that. Um, so that's, um, we watched the first episode of only murders in the building. Um, and they start to make a podcast. So I don't want to like, I'm not going to no spoilers about the show. Cause it's really delightful and highly recommend. Um, but at one point near the end of the first episode, they're recording some like voiceover for the episode and you realize it's some audio that you heard earlier and that's all I'll say. But you you watch the Steve Martin character enunciate for the radio and he leans in and his <laughs> his consonants are very clear, but they're not very hard. But you can see him finish each like each word gets its own <laughs> ending. And he you can you can sort of see him really enjoying it. And I just I just ate it up. I would say this is actually if I can um be super um self-absorbed and actually brag on marcia for a second um uh there's something about a performer's personality that i think affects how well they work in audio and i'm what i mean in this case is marcia is given to and really enjoys um works that are very much about the language um things that are like you did a gk chesterson show and um, Tom Stoppard and written by Bilal Dardai. Bilal Dardai, by the way, mm-hmm. adapted by Bilal adapted Dardai. Adapted by Bilal Dardai. Brilliantly, Bilal Dardai. if I may add. Um, and a lot of just like um, British writers and, you know, things that really um, want the performers to wrap their mouths around the words and, you know, make sweet love to them. Um, <laughs> and Marsha, in that way, is a wonderful lover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
And if that tape can't be used, um, <laughs> Marsha really enjoys um, the power of words and what you can do with words and um, just finding what your own instrument can do with words. And it's that kind of thing where we watch, we watch a lot of British television. Um, she will often repeat something that someone on the screen has said so she can enjoy that Northern dialect or whatever it is in the moment. It's a super endearing habit. Everyone should pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not to the point of like frustration, but it's an interesting character quirk. Um, I love you. Um, But it's, it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of proclivity that I think um, prepares Marsha well and makes her well suited for audio work. And I, while I know that of course about Marsha, I think, that's going to be true for a lot of people who work on this show Um, for um, for Michael or uh, for for Mark for I don't know everybody's individual stories. But I mean, my understanding, Mark, is that when you first got involved with Heartlife, that you just came in and were like, I just want to make monster noises all the time. Yeah, I still do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad we can give you a space for that because you're so good at it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I rem- so um Heartlife like started um with uh Jeffrey and Clayton Fates and a group of people who generally were connected to the Museum of Science and Industry all working as Harry Potter the exhibition wizards for a summer. Um and I remember a bunch of them were doing our first city and I like was late to the game. Like I didn't learn about it or something. And I remember feeling like all the cool kids are doing this fun (laughs) sci-fi podcast. Don't they know that I do improv and stuff? And so like, I was like, guys, if you know, if you have any, like, I don't, I I could do like monster sounds. I like, I I have like weird alien I could do. (laughs) I think Clayton was probably like, okay, kid, cool. (laughs) But, uh, he stepped into his limo. Yeah. Eventually, I uh, insinuated myself into the uh, cast and um, have loved it ever since. That's so funny. Yeah, I always thought of you as one of the, like, OG OFC people. I wasn't, I didn't OG until, (laughs) 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 Uh, until season two. Okay. As Simon. Okay. Yeah. Before we move on too far, I want to get back to someone's Simpsons impressions and see if any of those have informed uh, character choices you've made. Oh, gosh. Well, I haven't done them in years. And like, I think a lot of <laughs> like a lot of um, white American cis men of a certain age, you know, I just I was steeped in the Simpsons to the point of thinking it was a personality. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've actually, you know, left some of that behind as, as I think, uh, as we culturally have learned some of the problematic nature of the symptoms, but symptoms, Simpsons. Um, uh, no, I, I haven't done them in a long time, but yeah, I, Mo is one I remember trying to do a lot and, or Homer, or I don't know who all, um, I didn't bring it to this. And that's interesting, actually, thing about Rudy is that if you had asked me farther back in my acting career that you're eventually going to get this opportunity to do this um, audio drama and it's you're going to play a character that's a little outside the usual bubble of what you play. Um, what are you going to do? And I would have said, oh, it's going to sound like this character and this wacky thing and blah, blah, blah. 
And the only thing I really did with Rudy, it was just like, I felt, I felt compelled or almost obligated to, um, use the higher part of my register and then just otherwise be excited. <laughs> um, it, and it, in, in the end, Rudy has ended up more or less just my own speaking voice. Um, yeah, I've always sort of felt like Rudy is just you with the enthusiasm, the enthusiasm meter cranked up like an extra 30%. Oh, yeah. That, I don't know. That's how it's always read to me. <laughs> no, Rudy's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Legit. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, y'all. This was really fun. Uh, I love hanging out with you and chatting with you. And, you know, we haven't had as many opportunities to do it. So thank you. And we uh, thanks to everybody out there listening. We're excited to share these stories with you. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the year 1889, there was nowhere in the world more exciting than London, England. Three cheers for Inspector Lestrade and the bad boys of Baker Street themselves, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson! Solved by Sherlock Bloody Holmes of 221B Baker Street. Well, with any luck, we'll get a new brutal murder any day now. God, I wish. It's truly shocking you haven't solved anything in five years. The boys are both out of town for some case about a dog in Dartmoor this weekend. Sincerely, Martha Hudson. London's number two detective team just became number one. Fox and Stallion. Find us on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr at 224BBaker or on our website, 224BBaker.com. It's like they say, big breaks are 90% luck. What's the other 10%? Luck.